I'm Samuel, if you don't know me, one of the one of the elders here at Eastgate. Happy to be here with you. And um, we've got a we've got a pretty decent chunk of scripture to work through this morning. And I was just thinking before, look, there's probably going to be some questions that come up for you along the way that I'm not going to answer because there's there's a lot of like a lot of stuff going on in this passage, and we'd be here all day if we talked about all of it. So I have put my phone number up there. It's wrong. Zero four three. It's wrong. Give me half a second. Most of you should already have my phone number. How's that? Uh, so if you want to write that down, that way you can send me uh, a message. If if we get time at the end, I will try and respond. But if not, I will respond to your messages um, individually. Uh, later on. So if you have questions, there's the number. Write it down. But um, I wanted to ask you, what what things do you think of when you start talking about loyalty? This is an open question for you to actually respond, not just a theoretical, like a, a think it in your head. When When you start talking about loyalty, what do you think? What comes to mind? Dedication, yeah. Treason. Treason is the opposite of loyalty, yeah. Yeah. Through thick and thin. Yeah. Yes. When I think of loyalty, I think of uh, dogs. I was hoping that somebody would, would, you know, would put that out there and it would just be a natural, like, you know, segue into the, into my illustration, but I had to put it in myself. <laughs> Sorry? Cats. Cats. That's not what a, that's not what comes to mind when thinking about loyalty. Um, one of the most common images when you think about loyalty are, are dogs. You hear those stories of the, of loyal dogs that travel massive distances to find their, find their masters. It's, it's a common, common image. They, they look to their master for food, for approval, for direction, for companionship. And their identity is intrinsically tied up with their master. When they are separated, the dog's world is just not quite right. Things are a bit amiss. When they long to be where their master is, even if it's just to sit at their feet. And when they receive their master's wrath, they reform their behavior so that they don't receive wrath anymore. And I have a dog. Most of you know him. His name is Guess. And uh, he's a Border Collie. He's the sweetest thing you'll ever meet. I'm a bit biased. But um, when I'm outside with him, he follows me around and he frequently looks over to me to check what I'm doing. And, and if he needs to align himself with me, he, he often thinks he's being helpful by trying to do jobs for me, like he wants to round up the chickens. Not that I need them rounded up. But when I go inside, he will set himself against the door and he'll wait there for me to return. He will guard the way. He'll be prepared for the moment that I go outside again. And he's faithful. And, and even, uh, even last night, I saw him. There was two of us standing there with persons beside me giving Guess a direction. And Guess just ignored him. Guess 
was looking to me. And guests would normally follow his direction, but because his master was standing there, he was oblivious to what he was being told to do by the other person. Instead, he listened and waited for me to tell him what to do. And this is the kind of picture of loyalty that we ought to have towards God. Now, sure, we could we can get into details and we can explain away the loyalty of dogs with pack dynamics and the way that they're bred and all that kind of stuff. But it is a picture of loyalty. And the Old Testament uses dogs as a picture of loyalty. And the New Testament, sorry. We get a picture of a lady who says to Jesus that she's like a dog waiting for scraps from her master's table. And, uh, and we get that picture of Caleb in the Old Testament. Caleb, his name means dog because he was loyal. And you see that in the way that he lives out his life, in the way that even when all his mates say, look, we can't go in to take the promised land, Caleb stands up and says, yes, God has promised it to us. We can go in and take the promised land. And Caleb's rewarded for his loyalty. The, the theme in, of loyalty in, the, in, in the God's word doesn't just stop with those two people, though. Loyalty is a, is a massive theme. Another word we might use is faithfulness, but I thought faithfulness sounds a bit religious, and I wanted to use a word that, that has a slightly different tack to it in the way that we think about serving God. And we see loyalty is a huge theme across the Old Testament, especially who will you serve? It's either faithfulness or unfaithfulness. It's either serving the true God or idols. It's either obedience or disobedience, life or death, loyalty or disloyalty. And as we make our way through the passage, we'll see it very clearly. And this passage in 2 Kings will show how people's actions reveal their true loyalties and how their loyalties affect the world around them. We're going to break it down to these five sections. We're just going to go through them. Can't hit every verse, but we're going to go through and we're going to see how loyalty what it looks like in action, or what, what a lack of loyalty looks like. So we're going to, we will work through these, these five sections. I, I thought given that we're spending a lot of time in the New Testament recently, we would do a bit of a, a doctor and we would hop in our TARDIS and, and fly back uh, in time and uh, have a quick adventure, and then we will come back to Acts uh, next week. So we're dropping in to Israel 800 years before Jesus. We are, we are coming, uh, we are dropping into Israel, the divided kingdom. So this is, this is after the kingdom of uh, David and Solomon, after they've gone. The, the kingdom of Israel, as a, as a one cohesive unit, has been broken in two. And we have the northern kingdom of Israel, just to confuse you. We have the northern kingdom of Israel, that yellow section. And then we have a southern kingdom of Judah. We've got Samaria as the capital of Israel and Judah, uh, sorry, Jerusalem as the capital of Judah. And we've got them surrounded on all sides by other nations that are encroaching and pushing in on them. And at various times throughout the, the histories, you'll see all these nations coming into play in the life of, these, these, the, of, of Israel, the north and southern kingdom. Of particular interest to us today, of course, is Syria on this map, Aram. And you can see it up there in the top corner with its capital, Damascus. So that's where we're thinking about when we're thinking about Naaman, the Syrian. He's coming from up there and he's coming down into Israel. Uh, I think Samaria's over here somewhere, if I remember correctly. And uh, we've got the Jordan River that runs down through the middle of the land. 
So you've got that set in your mind. That's, that's the geography that we're talking about when we're talking about this story this morning. Now, it's supposed to be that the people of Israel are distinct from all these nations around them. They're meant to be this kind of this something special, something different. They're meant to be different from the rest, following after their God, Yahweh, living differently than all the pagan nations around them. They're meant to be the good guys that the other nations want to be like. They're supposed to look at Israel and say, that's what we want. We want their God. We want their way of life. But as you probably know, that's not really what happens after Israel takes the promised land, it's just a gradual cycle downwards, downwards and downwards. There's a few glimpses of hope, but things always seem to head in a genuinely downwards direction where the people of Israel don't remain loyal to God. And in fact, they start to live lives that look just like the, the countries around them. And it's so bad that we end up with this story where the model of what it looks like to be a follower of the Lord is the outsider, the, the foreigner. He comes and he is a better picture of what it looks like to be loyal to God than Israel's own people. And it's a reminder to us today, I think, especially in a world where it seems like everything is just heading the wrong way. It's things that turned upside down, where, where things aren't as they're supposed to be. Sometimes we look like everybody else when we're not meant to, when we're meant to stand alone and be distinct. It's a reminder to us to remain loyal to the Lord no matter what. Even when it seems stupid, even when it seems too simple, even when it seems like the world is falling apart, it is always better to be loyal to the Lord. So we're going to start at the start. Verse verse 1 to 5, there's this fellow called Naaman. He's a, he's a commander or a general in the Syrian army. And this guy has an impressive resume, including beating Israel in battle by God's design. So the God of Israel has allowed uh, the Syrian general to beat Israel in battle. And by all accounts, he's a successful guy. He's got it made. Everything's going for him, except he's a leper. He has a skin disease. And they call it leprosy here, but that's a kind of an umbrella term for a bunch of different skin diseases in the ancient world. So it probably carried a bit of a stigma with it. It was associated with, with you know, curse or as a result of moral failure. Essentially, it's seen as being impure, viewed as broken. In In the ancient Near East, people culturally valued life uh, they, they valued life in bodily wholeness. So things like disability, disease, and sickness were seen as things linked to death in impurity. And you see that when you read through Leviticus and you see some strange laws that just don't seem to make sense to our modern mind. Why is somebody ritually impure when they have bodily discharges? It's because it's associated with, with, with unwholeness. With, uh, it's associated with, with death. Um, and, and Yahweh is the God of life. Same goes for skin diseases. Those who were diseased in Israel were separated from the people in general, and they had no hope of coming towards God and worshipping him until they were healed and cleansed. And there were likely similar stigmas, probably different, but similar kind of stigmas in Syria. And viewed from an Israelite perspective, Naaman 
was like the direct opposite of what you would want to be, you know. He's, he's the furthest from God that you could get. He was, he was ethnically different, religiously different, state enemies with leprosy. He was the furthest out away from God that you could be. So there's this guy, a Syrian, career military guy who has a skin disease, and through God's providence, he has an Israelite slave in his house. This is a a little girl that he's kidnapped during one of his raids against Israel. And this young girl, stolen from her home and family, put to work in this household, has every reason to be bitter and angry and heap curses on the heads of of her new masters. But she doesn't. She says, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Instead, she, she tells them of a mighty prophet of God in her home country who could help. She holds out hope that her oppressor could find healing. And a healing that wouldn't end up being just physical, but a healing that carries a spiritual dimension because those outward leprous, you know, the skin disease, for them had connotations of spiritual matters. So I, I don't want to read into this text more than is actually present But the implication here is that this little enslaved girl still holds to her own God and his representative despite her situation. She knows that the Lord works through this prophet in her home country. And and it might be a stretch from the text to say that she remains loyal to the Lord, but she, but she, she puts a high stock in the reputation of one of God's prophets. So much so that her advice, her concern for Naaman causes him to go and make arrangements to travel to this country to investigate. So this little girl speaks of the power of God's representative here on earth and puts Naaman on a path to an encounter with the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an inspiration for us, that this little girl who would be the lowest rung in society is having an effect that causes somebody to seek out the Lord. This girl enslaved, made in the foreign land, one of the lowest in her society is able to affect the spiritual destiny of a powerful man. Do you think about that? Never think that your, your influence as a Christian is insignificant. God uses us where we are, even if the circumstances seem most unfavorable. Do you know what one of the greatest missionary forces in the world today is? Filipino maids. Christian women who travel across the world and live in foreign lands and serve in, 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 in families of, of um, serve in homes. They do unimpressive work, but they're sharing their faith where they are in the situation where they are across the world, and they are having a powerful effect. These girls do unimpressive work, sometimes in abusive conditions, yet where they are, they are able to show their loyalty to God. So don't think that because you're not some rock star evangelist or you have all your theological ducks in a row or or you don't have all your theological ducks in a row or because you haven't been a Christian for very long, don't think that you are incapable of having an effect for God and for good. Instead, wherever you are, remain loyal to the Lord, even if it's in slavery, and use the opportunities as they arise because you might be an instrument that God uses bring someone to faith. 
So next we see that there's loyalty lacking. Naaman has a chat to his boss, arranges a trip to Israel. Being an important dignitary that he is, his first port of call is to go and see the king of Israel. Just like if an important dignitary came to Australia, he would head down to uh, Canberra and they would have a meeting with, uh, with the Prime Minister and there'd be lots of photos and gifts exchanged. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here, but in an ancient Near Eastern kind of way. They come with letters of introduction. And Naaman probably rightly thinks, look, if there's a powerful, uh, powerful prophet in the land who works wonders and, and is associated with their God, then this king is going to be connected with him. The king of the, the land is going to be connected with the, the powerful prophet in the land or even have him on his payroll. It's not unreasonable to expect. But when, <laughs> when he rocks up, if the king is more concerned with his own cause than with Naaman's cause. He said, uh, when the, he starts to freak out. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this, a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel is worried. His first response is one of selfish concern. He's picking a fight with me. I can't, I can't heal this guy. He's looking for an excuse to go to war with us. He's not concerned with Naaman or he's diseased. He's worried that his northern neighbours are looking for a fight. He thinks that Naaman is a trick because obviously he as a king isn't God. He can't heal him. He feels like he's being trapped into being a poor host who can't help with the situation. And he tears his, tears his clothes as a sign of despair. And it's a, it's a sad set of affairs when the king of Israel, who ought to be familiar with God's prophets and the ways of the Lord, looks inward to his own devices instead of outwards to God's help through his representative. Instead of turning to God for help, he just says, I'm not God, I can't do it. In the same breath that he recognizes that God can heal, he fails to turn to God to supply his need. The king's loyalty is lacking. The king of Israel, or any ruler for that matter, is supposed to be a picture of the perfect person, the person that everybody should want to be like. They're meant to be the model of what is good and right, the example for everyone to follow. They ought to be morally upright, very spiritual, and the wisest, wisest of people. Yet here the king of Israel fails on most of these criteria, doesn't turn to God, fails to have concern for Naaman, and can't advise him of where to find a remedy. So this story presents a weak king who's more concerned with himself than helping others. His loyalty to the Lord is lacking, thinking only of his own inability and not of the Lord's extraordinary power. But next, in in verses 8 to 14, we see loyalty through humility. This despair seems to go on for some time with the king, long enough that um, that word gets around to Elisha. The king has probably put Naaman and his party up for a while while he figures out, what am I going to do with this Naaman guy? And Elisha sends a letter and says, "Um, Hello, why are you freaking out? Send him to me so that he can receive God's power. So he can see God's power. See that in verse 8. For when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, 
Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman heads down, probably pretty keen to meet this guy who might be able to heal him. He's an important dignitary. He turns up with his fancy ride and his entourage at Elisha's place. And Elisha doesn't answer the door. Instead, Elisha sends a message, go and wash in the river seven times. Imagine that. Imagine that a top military commander from another country rocks up at your door in a limo with his dress uniform, his entourage of assistants and aides all over the place. And instead of answering the door, you send a text. Hey, mate, you want to get here? Hop down to the condomine, go for a swim, that'll fix her right up. Naaman, understandably so, is ticked off. He's an important guy. Who does this guy think he is? He could have at least come out and put on a show, waved his arms around, said some incantations. He says in in verse 11, Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would have surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. He goes on to say that, look, the Jordan River is not that impressive. In fact, if it's water that could do the trick, I could have stayed home and washed in some better rivers back in Damascus. And in that moment, he feels like he's wasted his time and energy. He's been hugely disrespected. Why should he listen to this insolent fellow and wash in the not-so-great Jordan River seven times? Now, his servants come along and try and calm him down. They say, look, he did say that you could be healed, right? What have you got to lose? That's good. He has hope of healing held out to him. He could be whole and restored if he would but humble himself. And here is where Naaman takes his steps of loyalty to the Lord. He swallows his pride. And he sought healing through the simple act of washing himself in the unimpressive river. And there was was nowhere else to turn for healing. He had to submit to the second-hand message in the hopes that he might find restoration. And what happens in verse 14? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. The great man humbles himself by following the instructions of God's prophet. And it means restoration. It means wholeness. It means a new life. The simple submission results in healing from Elisha's God, the Lord of Is the Lord God of Israel. And and the thing is, we it's abundantly clear that this healing is from God. It's not from Elisha, he doesn't even bother to answer the door. The healing is not from the water. There's plenty of other more impressive water to go and wash in. The healing is from Elisha's God, Yahweh. And and Naaman recognizes that in the next verse, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's worth noting how in order to receive from God, he had to humble himself. He had to swallow his pride and submit to what seemed like a simple command. Naaman begins his loyalty to the Lord through humility. And the same goes for us. We stand far removed from Naaman and and his place in salvation history, but the principle remains the same. 
we recognize that we don't have it in ourselves to fix our purity problem. We're broken people. We are impure people. We are people who need external help to be cured. Now, we might not carry around the signs of our impurity on our body like like Naaman did, but our hearts are surely defiled. And when we come before God, we have to put away the pomp and ceremony. We have to swallow our pride and say what Naaman's servant said. It is great word that Jesus has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He actually said to you, wash and be clean. When we come before Jesus Christ, we come hat in hand. We come humbled, asking that Christ will cleanse us. And he will. He will wash us. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As as sinners, we stand before God as impure, unholy, defiled, and carrying the stench of death. And we beg Jesus, Lord, if you will, if you want, you can make us clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches us by his spirit and he says, I want, I want it, be clean. We receive our spiritual cleansing from Jesus and we pledge our loyalty to him. And even though the cleansing of Christ is spiritual and invisible, we go through a ritual as Christians that we do to show that we have been washed and cleansed. We do a ritual washing that we call baptism. A washing of our body that mimics the spiritual cleansing of our souls. We submit ourselves to God and we are consecrated to him. Loyalty to the Lord begins with humility. But then it goes on and loyalty has to be confirmed by our way of life. In verses 15 to 19, we get back to Naaman and he's understandably impressed. He's been healed of disease. With the, with a miraculous sign, Naaman is now willing to disown all other gods and serve the Lord God of Israel. He hasn't seen anything like this anywhere else. If you look in verse 15, he said, he returned to the man of God and all his company and he came and stood before him and said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. So Naaman has a newfound loyalty to the Lord. His outward cleansing has been the cause of an inward change. The conversion to the true God. And now as a thankful recipient, he wants to give a gift. He wants to say thank you. He wants to repay. But Elisha... Elisha wants to make sure that there is no appearance of payment for services rendered. Elisha is not for hire. God's grace cannot be bought. God's gracious miracle is not repayable with gifts. And so Elisha outright refuses. So next, Naaman starts coming to grips with the reality of being loyal to the Lord in his home country. What's it going to look like for me to worship the Lord when I'm in Syria? How will he worship the Lord? Now, most people thought in that time that the gods of, the, of their nations were connected to the land that the people dwelt. And so he's thinking, well, if I'm going to worship the Lord and the Lord is connected to Israel, I need to take some of Israel back home with me so that I can worship God there. He'll probably want to take this two um, donkey loads of, of dirt to set up an altar or a shrine of some kind so that he can make sacrifices to God. 
So for now, he's thinking through, how am I going to worship God? He asks for the soil. And then he realizes that part of his official duties as the commander of the armies and, and being you know, an offsider to the king is that he's going to accompany the king in worship of another god. He's going to have to accompany him as part of his official duties into the temple of Ramon. It was his job to be at the king of Syria's side. So he's trying to think through, how am I going to remain loyal while attending a worship service for a foreign god? And Naaman's still coming to grips with that loyalty to the Lord and what it's like. So for now, he simply asks, forgive me for what I'm going to do. Obviously, he's struggling with it. That's why he brings it up. There's, there's some kind of conflict of interest going on here, and so he needs to address it. He says, just pardon your servant in advance. And Elisha's neither kind of positive or negative about this. It's kind of like an, a, there's almost like an implicit okay, because the next thing Elisha says is, go in peace. But it's a bit ambiguous. Why doesn't Elisha say more? It could be that Elisha wasn't worried about it, or he could he trusts that the spirit of God will be at work, and that uh, in that uh, Naaman will have it all sorted out in the end. But Naaman knew that there was no God in all the earth, but in Israel, and he didn't want to have divided loyalties. And I mean, it's no no surprise what's going on here. Often, when people come to Christianity and they switch loyalties. It takes a while to come to grips with all the implications of what does it look like now to serve God? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? It takes a while sometimes, and you've got to figure out what loyalty looks like in different situations. And even people who have been Christians for years are still going, well, how do I be faithful to God in this context? What do I have to do in this situation? And just quickly, I want to think about three things that has to happen when you are thinking about these things, especially if you're a a relatively young Christian. There are some things in your life that are fine, that you can just carry on with. Some things in life don't change when you come to Jesus because they're already good or right. If you might have a good job, as in a morally good job, not as in well-paying or whatever, but you might have a, a job that is pleasing to God. You might have pleasing relationships or habits that are God-honoring, and if they are, that's fine. Carry on. But there are some things that you will need to change. As you examine your life in light of Christ, you might, not, you might find that your, your job, relationships, or habits are, are twisted. There's something broken about them that needs to be fixed. They need to be redeemed. You might find that you need to stop stealing from your employer by dodging up your timesheets, or you might need to stop mistreating your wife. Or stop getting drunk. Or you might need to change your speech to cut out the obscenity or gossip. There are different things in your life that might have, might be good in themselves, but they're being abused or misused. So you have to change it. And lastly, there will be things that you just have to drop. Things that you have to get rid of. Sometimes there are things that just have to go. Things that are flat out wrong and must be cut out of our lives. Stop sleeping with someone you're not married to whether it's in your mind or in real life. Quit the job where you have to swindle others out of their money. Get rid of your illegal possessions. And these are things, these are things that you just have to get rid of when you come to Jesus. It's a sign of your loyalty to God that you get rid of all these other things. 
Naaman, like all of us, has to grapple with what loyalty looks like in our life. There will be some things that are just flat out anti-God in every time and age. But there will be things that are slightly different in every age. Like how we interact with our society, what we wear, what words we use, what we eat, what music we listen to, what entertainment we like, and so on, will be different in different cultures and times. But we should think carefully about what we're doing like Naaman was, and we should be asking ourselves, what confirms my loyalty to the Lord? I personally have a hard time coming to grips with with what Naaman said he was going to do, with going into the temple and bowing down. But the text is ambiguous. It's silent on whether or not it's okay to be an observer in this capacity for Naaman. But it's a reminder to us, I think, not to be too quick to judge when we see other Christians behaving in a way that is unnatural to us. Often we just write off somebody as being unfaithful to God because our own conscience can't hack it. It it might seem cliche, but there's still folks out there who, who think that Rap music is evil, despite the fact that some of the most theologically rich music of our time comes from Christian rappers. There's a bit of cliche, but but it's an example that, that proves the point. So I ask you, ask you to examine your choices and practices. What confirms your loyalty to the Lord? Lastly, we see that disloyalty leads to deprivation. The story ends on a switch in verses 20 to 27. There's a a switch. Every every good story needs a switch or a twist. And in this we have a a flip. Things are flipped around. We are introduced here to Gehazi. Essentially, Naaman kind of drops off the map. He's not the main character anymore. The story switches to Gehazi. He's an apprentice of Elisha's, an assistant. And he is overtaken by greed. Greed which is insidious. It seems harmless, but then it brings destruction. This is an example of the typical effect of greed in Gehazi's life. And I was thinking, by the, by the providence of God, I have an excellent example of this. Because yesterday we had some, we had some excitement. Because getting back to thinking about dogs... Dogs, um, you feed them with uh, like dry food that looks like little pellets. And one of the dogs at home yesterday had had his dinner the night before. He doesn't get fed till the next night, but he was out looking for more food. And he came across some little pellets lying on the ground that he thought would be great food to tide him over till dinner time. But it turns out that these little pellets on the ground was rat bait. And so this dog, in his, he's a dog, we'll give him a pass, but in his greed, he ended up consuming poison. That's what greed is. Greed is a poison. Now, we had to get him to the vet and and get get him to throw up, and he's got to have special medicine so that he doesn't die. But that's what greed is like. It seems so simple. It seems so innocent to begin with, but it's poison. Greed is insidious. It starts as a desire for more, a bit of covetousness, something you want. Gehazi wanted a piece of the booty. He said, look, if Elisha doesn't want any of the goods, I'll take some for myself, thanks. So he chases down Naaman as he's on his way and he spins a tall tale to get some of the wealth. Gehazi's greed leads to disloyalty towards Elisha and ultimately towards God. 
He lies and deceives. He has to plan and manipulate. He hides his activity. And Gehazi tricks the newly converted, generous Naaman into giving him some clothes and money. And when he gets it all back to the house and gets it hidden, he heads out to Elisha as if he hadn't even left the building. What have you been up to? Oh, nothing, mate. Been here the whole time. He should know better than to lie to a true prophet. In fact, one that has just participated in a miracle. Elisha, knowing what was going on, gives Gehazi the outward sign of his impurity. Where, where Naaman, had, Naaman had received his purity and had the outward sign of his impurity removed, now that outward sign is given to the one who is inwardly impure. Gehazi's heart was far from God. He was loyal to his own wallet over the Lord of Israel and his representative Elisha. His greed led to lying, deceit, pride, ultimately disloyalty. So Naaman's curse was lifted when he humbled himself and Gehazi's pride earned him the curse. They switched places. The, the, the bloke who's in Israel, who's an assistant to one of the prophets, is the one who is, is showing what it's like to be disloyal to God. And the one who is a foreigner outside of Israel is showing us what it looks like to be loyal to God. And interestingly, the, this curse was for Gehazi and his descendants. The effect of his disloyalty was intergenerational. And despite the way that Gehazi set out to build up, to attain more, to increase his wealth, he ended up being worse off. He couldn't serve Elisha anymore. He was sent out, probably ostracized from society. A couple changes of clothes and some silver is a poor consolation for a life as an outcast. Disloyalty leads to deprivation. And the same goes for us. Disloyalty, disowning Jesus, living in a way that is, that is opposed to God, leads to death. Not just a physical death, spiritual death. You might think that your sins are harmless for now, but they will kill you. So let's kind of tie up where we've been this morning. We've, we've been talking about what it looks like to be loyal to the Lord. We've seen that there was this little girl who was showing signs of loyalty in oppression. And I would encourage you to do the same so that you might be used of God. I would encourage you to not be like the king who lacked loyalty, but instead to turn to God rather than to yourself. I would remind you that loyalty begins with humility. Submit to God. Receive the cleansing of Christ. A cleansing that was purchased for you with Christ's blood on a cross. He died to bring you life. You don't have to pay for it because he paid for it. It's free and it's open to you. That cleansing, if you would but submit to him. If you would but humble yourself before him. It's a great word that has been given to us that we ought to respond to even though it seems silly at times. But it brings life. We see that we should live in a way that confirms our loyalty, seeing as we belong to Jesus. And we've been reminded that disloyalty leads to deprivation. Greed and deceit is a dangerous path to destruction. I think that the the overall message has been clear this morning. Be loyal to the Lord no matter the circumstances. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this, this crazy story that tells us so much about what it looks like to belong to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remain faithful in the land that we live, in the society that we find ourselves. Lord, show us the areas of our life where we are not submitting to you. Lord, show us where we are being disloyal so that we may change and be loyal. And Lord, send us your spirit so that we may actually change and not just have a surface level change. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would, you would cleanse us so that we might serve you with, with pure hearts, with pure motives. Lord, hear our prayer in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.